You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading for the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for January 31st. I'm Mel from Drake University. Here is our first story. The first story is titled Iowa Dems Elect Rita Hart. New Leader Selected Party Attempts to Bounce Back from Poor Election Showings. The story is written by Erin Murphy from Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Rita Hart, a former candidate for Congress and Lieutenant Governor, Governor, and one of the last Democrats to re- represent a rural district in the legislature, was elected Saturday by her fellow Iowa Democrats to lead the party as it attempts to rebound from a string of poor election performances in the state. Elected to a two-year term during a virtual meeting of the Iowa Democratic Party's Leadership Committee, Hart assumes leadership of the state party as Democrats are reeling from poor election outcomes in 2014, 2016, 2020, and 2022. In the state, as and as the party is fresh off its presidential caucuses, being stripped off their enviable first-in-the-nation status. Hart, 66, of Wheatland, did not immediately speak after her election, but during her remarks ahead of the vote pledged to focus primarily on winning elections in Iowa. In her candidacy letter to state party leaders, she highlighted a need for Democrats to raise more money in order to build a stronger campaign apparatus. Hart noted that she twice won elections in a state house district carried by Donald Trump and outperformed Joe Biden more than other Democratic congressional candidates. She said she has gained even more perspective on what it will take for Iowa Democrats to win elections again while serving as chair of the Clinton County Democrats over the past year. I've seen at a grassroots level the kind of support that our country Our county parties need in order to work more effectively, Hart said. I'm under no illusions that this will be easy, and I know it will take time. But I am heartened by the support that I've heard from the state party leadership committee and from folks across our state. Hart succeeds state representative Ross Wilburn from Ames, who stepped down after serving as party chair the past two years. Wilburn was the first Black Iowan to serve as a major party state chair. I know that we have made some important strides since January of 2021. Even if it doesn't feel like it, Wilburn told party members during the first meeting, we did our best to fight for a better future for every Iowan. Hart was selected over two other candidates, Brittany Ruland, 32, who moved to Iowa in 2019 to work on Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign and also worked on Eddie Moreau's U.S. Senate campaign in 2020, and Sarah Trone, Garrett's state legislative campaign in 2022. In the latter, Trone Garriott defeated former Iowa Senate President Jake Chapman. In Bob Krause, 73, a former state legislator who ran for the U.S. Senate nomination in 2010 and 2016 and for governor in 2014. Hart received 34 votes, Ruland 14, and Krauss 1. Hart served in the Iowa Senate and was Democratic gubernatorial candidate Fred Hubel's running mate in 2018, losing to Governor Kim Reynolds and Lieutenant Governor Adam Craig by three percentage points. 
Hart later lost her 2020 congressional race, race to Republican U.S. Marionette Miller Meeks by historically close six votes. Hart is now serving as chair of the Clinton County Democratic Party. In an email to members of the state central committee, Hart wrote that she has never previously considered leading the party, but that she cares deeply about the Iowa Democrats' success. My focus is squarely on helping our party begin winning elections again. With that focus on winning in mind, I've worked to put together a series of proposals on the governance of our party and structure of staff that will put IDP's focus squarely on supporting our elected leaders and candidates for office, Hart wrote. The email included a document she called her Mandate for Change that emphasizes the need for state party to raise money so that it can adequately invest in candidates and amplify a statewide message including hiring a staffer to manage online fundraising as part of a proposed small-dollar donor program. The plan also calls for hiring positions dedicated to content generation, digital and field organizing, and a data director to manage and improve the party's voter base. Instead of starting with four organizers covering 20-plus counties each, we will begin with organizers having responsibility for only a couple of contiguous counties and responsible for working that turf all off year aggressively, Hart wrote. This program will grow to cover more counties as more funding becomes available and serves as a pilot for an eventual 99 county year-round program. Hart proposed prioritizing smaller swing counties in statewide race as well as counties that need additional capacity to grow but have shown clear signs of committed leadership. As the Democratic Iowa caucuses, Hart, Hart, during a virtual forum hosted by the Southwest Iowa Democrats, did not say whether she thinks the party should hold an unsanctioned caucus in defiance of the Democratic National Committee, as some have suggested. None of the three candidates for state chair during Saturday's meeting mentioned the caucuses during their remarks. State party members spent the first two hours of the meeting arguing over newly created constituency groups, one for Arab Americans and one for environmental and climate change issues. They were not formally created and recognized in time to vote in Saturday's leadership election. This story is paired with a headshot of Rita Hart. The next story is titled Citizens Police Academy Second Week. Drug Enforcement Chaplain Corps takes center stage. Story is written by David Goldwitz from the Nonpareil online. At first glance, and probably second and third glances, members of the Southwest Iowa Narcotics Enforcement Task Force don't look like how one might imagine police officers are supposed to look, which, given their nature of work, is by design. When tasked with insinuating yourself into the world of illegal drugs in order to stop its distribution in your area, you want an officer who doesn't set off any alarm bells by their mere presence. All officers who provided a glimpse into the Council Bluffs seedy underbelly of all veterans of the CPPD requested that they not be identified and so will be referred to as Swine 1, Swine 2, and Swine 3, 
in, ref in reference to the task force acronym and not the derogatory term often directed at the police, PIG. In fact, when asked whether the task force acronym was in any way a reference to the word PIG, it appeared to have not crossed anyone's mind. It's just a coincidence. The three swine officers were all dressed in jeans, t-shirts, and hoodies. Normal, everyday clothes that pair well with their scruffy beards. A lot of the reasons we dress the way we do, we look at the way we do, we don't wear uniforms is because we interview people a lot, Swine once said, and there's a different attitude when they talk to us dressed like this than when we're in uniform. They can calm down a bit sometimes. There's a command presence that you have to carry when you are in uniform and you are allowed to break that down and kind of just talk to them in a different way. Working drug enforcement in Council Bluffs is very much like trying to find a job in that network in that networking plays an important role in both. Who you know can just as easily score you dope as it can to find you a job. And it's the job of the swine task force to tap into those drug networks and find out where the drugs are coming from. Arresting some guy slinging dope on his corner or out of his house is not going to do much in the grand scheme of drug trafficking. There will always be someone to fill that void. The key to stopping the flow of drugs into or through the city lines, further up the food chain, and most likely lives in Mexico. It's all cartels, Swine 2 said. If you get high enough, if you're buying pounds from people, eventually you just are going to get a number straight to Mexico. Once somebody in Mexico receives that call, it starts a whole chain reaction that culminates in two guys, most likely strangers, meeting each other to exchange cash for drugs. And that's what it makes it so hard, is that somebody here is calling Mexico. Mexico is calling somebody else. These two guys don't even know each other, Swine 3 said. So when they meet up, one guy's like, I have no clue what that guy's name was. He was just some Hispanic dude in his mid to late 20s, short brown hair. This story is paired with two images of Council Bluffs police officers, one labeled Council Bluffs Police Department Chaplain's Corps, Members Lynn Satoff standing and Kevin Sewing at the Citizens Police Academy on January 26, 2023. The other one is captioned Council Bluffs Police Department Chaplain Corps member Ward Doering explains what a chaplain does at the Citizens Police Academy on Thursday, January 26, 2023. Even if Swine or another enforcement agency takes down the people dealing drugs at the local level, it's no skin off the cartel's nose. They already got their money and the drugs are relatively cheap to make. They'll just send more shipment across the border, collect their money and carry on. Even when a shipment is stopped at the border, it's only one of many and the cartel chalks it up to the cost of doing business. The Swine Task Force uses a multitude of tools to combat the drug trade, from interviews with users or dealers or placing someone under surveillance for a period of time, Swine 1 said. Interviews are really probably the bread and butter of all our investigations, Swine 1 said. Jail interviews, uniform making, traffic stops, calling us. We'll go to the traffic stop sometimes and we'll talk to them right there. We're in houses. It's just constantly talking to people. With surveillance, sometimes a neighbor will contact the police to tell them about suspicious activity at a house down the street. People coming and going at all times of the day and night 
loud music, yelling. Surveillance is just constantly looking at houses, constantly looking at people, trying to build a pattern of life, Swine said. Everyone, whether they like to believe it or not, has a pattern of behavior and a pattern to their life. They get up at the same time, they go to the gym at the same time, they go to certain places at the same time. Everyone's on a routine and everyone wants to be on a routine. And so we try to figure out those patterns out in what people are doing and then they can lead us to how they're selling drugs, who they're selling drugs to, and then the cases just kind of go from there. Another tool in Swine's toolbox is interdiction. When someone is pulled over on the interstate, sometimes it's because law enforcement was looking for something specific. One day we were looking, my DEA group was out in West Nebraska. We were looking for a certain kind of U-Haul style truck and it was supposed to be a certain area at a certain time, Swine One said. There was three of them. Of course, we didn't have a plate number and they all had similar license plates. We pulled all three of them over for different violations. Two of them had dope in them. Only one of them was what we were looking for. The other one was just a lucky strike. One of the class participants asked if the trucks had actually done anything wrong that would warrant being stopped. You have to have reasons, Swine 2 said. Who goes the exact speed limit? Don't use your seatbelt. Don't use your turn signal. After the Swine, officers spoke. Three members of the police department's chaplain corps spoke out about their duties. Chaplains are there to talk to officers or, more importantly, to listen. Being a police officer brings with it a lot of stress, said Ken Sewing, who has been a chaplain of the CBPD since 2009. They need somebody that they could talk to and know it goes in and doesn't come out, Sewing said. They need that because they're under a lot of stress every day. I mean, the three swine officers you just saw, imagine the stress of their lives they have. But it's the same with any uniform. They have everything that you and I have at home, and then they come and get to listen to all of us mouth off to them. Much like a priest, anything an officer says to a chaplain stays within the chaplain. The only exception being the chaplain believes the officer to be a danger to himself or others. Out of the three chaplains who spoke to the class, only Lynn Sathoff has experience as a police officer. He worked in the CBPD records department for 11 years and had daily interactions with many of the officers. During that 11 years here, you get to know the officers and become part of the family, Sathoff said. They remind me that when I retired, if you want to come back and support them as much as I could. Sathoff is the only member of the chaplain corps who is not an ordained minister, but that never stopped him from ministering to the men and women of the department, Sewing said. This guy says he's not a minister, Sewing said. He's been ministering to the officers ever since he came to work in this department, and they love him. And when I said we're considering Lynn to have him being one of our chaplains, we all said he already is. The guys trust him. They know they can. And that's the biggest thing with being a chaplain. Ward Doing in the military police officer in the 1980s, and he applied to join the Omaha Police Department and Nebraska State Troopers. But by the time he heard back about his application, he already had another job. By the time they called me back to come to work, I had a different job, and I would have taken about 50% cut in pay. And my wife said, nah, we've got three little kids at home. So life took me in a different direction, he said. 
Dowering worked as a chaplain in Omaha for 12 years before he and his wife moved to Council Bluffs. He has been a member of the Council Bluffs Chaplain Corps for four years. We're trained to try and get to know you, the officers, as you are, Sewing said. In that way, we are trained to try and watch you during briefings and when we do ride-alongs. And when we're just talking with you, to find or to notice when you're not being you, according to who you typically are. If we can pick up that you're carrying a burden, then we have... We don't have the solutions. Typically, we will not, but we'll talk to you with. We'll talk to you wherever it is you need to go to get you to get you that solution, and we will talk to you and try and help you open up. Hey, I got a problem, and then we're going to see that we can do everything you need to for what you need. The next story is titled. Bill Would Limit Solar Panel Construction, written by Caleb McCullough from the QCTimes.com. Energy companies and landowners would be limited on where they can set up solar panel arrays under a building under a bill advanced in the Iowa Senate. <clears throat> the bill, Senate Study Bill 1077, would prohibit setting up a commercially owned solar field on lands suitable for agriculture within 150 feet of a neighboring property or within 1,250 feet of a neighboring residence or livestock facility. A three-member subcommittee advanced the bill two to one, noting they intend to amend it. Senator Dan Zumbach, Republican Ryan and Don Driscoll, Republican Williams Williamsburg voted to advance it, while Senator Tony Bizignato, Democrat Des Moines, did not. Zumbach, the bill's floor manager, said it is intended to address multiple concerns landowners have about solar fields on neighboring properties. Some landowners don't like to see solar panels near their property, he said, and he also said tornadoes and windstorms could blow debris into an adjacent property. Most people that live around them don't like what they look like when they they are used to looking at farmland and pastures, and they see this new industrial-style product coming to their farmland, he said. But by no means is this a bill intended to shut down the solar industry. It's going to be a viable part of the state of Iowa, but it's about showing respect for everybody on each side of the fence. Zumbach introduced a similar bill last year that would have prohibited installing solar panel fields on highly productive farmland. The bill also included a 1,250-foot setback requirement from the closest property. Several power companies and environmental organizations are registered opposed to the legislation, and they said during the subcommittee meeting it would limit options for landowners and hurt the expansion of solar power. The bill would severely limit the land available for landowners who wish to monetize their land in this particular fashion, Alliant Energy lobbyist Ted Stopoulos said. Alliant Energy has both large units utility scale and smaller user-hosted solar panels. The company is aiming to generate 400 megawatts of solar energy by 2024, according to its website. As of 2022, 
there were 646 megawatts of solar energy installed across Iowa, according to the Solar Energy Industries Association. The state ranks 27th by the portion of its energy coming from solar power. Opponents also said the setback requirement, which amounts to almost a quarter mile from a neighboring residence or livestock facility, would be a project killer and put a huge limit on the amount of space energy companies and landowners have to work with. The larger you make that distance, that means the more farmland we actually have to go and try to work on, because you're taking that farmland by the homeowner, by the livestock facility out of use. You've got to go acquire that someplace else. That means ultimately you're raising the cost, said Christopher Rance, a lobbyist for the Iowa Solar Energy Trade Association and Next Era Energy. Matt Gronwald, a lobbyist for the Iowa Farm Bureau, said the organization is in support of the bill and it would support restricting only large-scale projects of 40 acres or more. Samantha Peterson, a farmer from Benton County, who spoke at the meeting, said she supports the bill but is mostly concerned with utility-scale products projects as well. I think this is a good place to start to set a wide or to set a statewide regulation or rules and to really protect non-participating neighbors like my family and others around the state. And just giving us some peace of mind and a seat at the table when these large projects are composed, she said. Zumbach said during the meeting that he is willing to amend the bill to address some of the issues raised, including adjusting the setback distance. He also said he would consider allowing a neighbor to sign a waiver to avoid the distance requirement. Whether these numbers are the right numbers or not, we don't know that, he said, but we can have that discussion and numbers are movable. The next story is titled CHI Health Mercy Hospital Heart Care Beat National Guidelines Last Year, written by Tim Johnson from the Nonpareil Online. CHI Health Mercy Hospital beat national guidelines for door-to-balloon time last year when receiving heart attack patients with complete blockages in their coronary arteries, or STEMIs, according to data from the Council Bluffs Fire Department shared by CHI Health. In 2022, CBFD EMS crew transported 19 patients with STEMI with STEMI symptoms to area hospitals. 11 of them were taken to CHI Health Mercy Hospital, and 10 of them were determined to have blockages and were taken to Murthy's catheterization lab. When someone's having a heart attack, they have an artery that is completely occluded. So the sooner you can get that opened up, the better, said Dr. Terrence Slattery, a CHI cardiologist. We call it Time is muscle. The longer the heart muscle is without blood flow, the more likely it is to become scar tissue. A faster response means preventing lasting damage to the heart and improving the patient's ability to recover. For Mercy, the average time from the first medical contact to balloon last year was 78.2 minutes, well below the national guidelines of 90 minutes. A lot of the credit should go to the Council Bluffs EMS crews, Slattery said. EMS has done a remarkable job, he said. CBFD ambulance are equipped with EKG monitors so they can check a patient on the way to the hospital and call the emergency room, where the staff can relay information to the cardiologist in the cath lab. 
Slattery said. Once the patient is found to have a blockage, they are given medication prepped for the cath lab and blood is drawn for lab tests, he said. Once they reach the cath lab, a sheath is inserted into a blood vessel, which is injected with dye and x-rayed to show if there is a complete blockage and where. If there is a stent, <clears throat> if there is, a stent is generally inserted to keep the artery open. Slattery, a native Pocahontas, earned his medical degree at Creighton University School of Medicine and completed an internship residency and cardiology fellowship at Creighton University Medical Center, Bergen Mercy. He practices at CHI Health Clinic Heart Institute at Bergen Mercy, CHI Health Clinic Heart Institute, Mercy Council Blacks, CHI Health Clinic Heart Institute, Onawa, and CHI Health Clinic Heart Institute Outreach, Onawa, and has affiliations with CHI health hospitals throughout the area. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for January 31st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Mel from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any questions or comments about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. You will now go through today's obituaries. The first is Arlene Driver. Arlene Driver, age 97, passed away peacefully at Bethany Lutheran Home on January 26, 2023. She was born March 29, 1925, to the late Arthur and Minnie Johnson Wollers in BB Town, Iowa. Arlene graduated from BB Town High School and was a member of St. John Lutheran Church in Honey Creek, Iowa. In addition to her parents, she was preceded in death by her husband, Chester Chet Driver, daughter, Catherine Peterson, son-in-law, Gary Peterson, brothers, Glenn and Harold Wollers, sisters, Wilma Clark and Eva June Wood. Arlene is survived by her sons and daughters-in-law, Roger and Debbie Driver, Mark and Tina Driver, Sister Gladys Bois, five grandchildren, 15 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. Memorial service will be held on Tuesday, January 31st, 2023 at 11 a.m. at St. John's Lutheran Church, Honey Creek. Visitation will be during the hour prior to the service. Inurement will be at in the Grange Cemetery. Memorials are suggested to the St. John Lutheran Church or Bethany Lutheran Home. The next is for Lowell, Doug Lantry. Doug Lantry, age 70, of Trainer, Iowa, passed away peacefully at his home on January 27, 2023. He was born February 4, 1952, to Gerald and Anna Lantry in Detroit, Michigan. Doug owned and operated Tom's Auto Body Shop in Council Bluffs until 2015. In addition to his parents, he was preceded in death by his wife, Anna Lantry, brothers, Sonny David, and Merrill Lantry. Doug is survived by his daughters, Tina, Pika, and Laura Lantry, grandsons, Alex Bugs Fox and Logan Fox, sisters, Myrna T. 
Tankersley, and Shelda Lantry, a host of other family and friends. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. at Hoy Kilnowski Funeral Home, Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. Funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. at Hoy Kilnowski Funeral Home, Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. Interment is in the Ridgewood Cemetery. Cemetery. Memorials are suggested to trainer, fire, and rescue. The next story is titled, FDA Moves to Ease Rules for Blood Donations from Gay Men. Matthew Perrone, Associated Press. The U.S. is moving to further ease restrictions on blood donations from gay and bisexual men and other groups that typically face higher risk of HIV. The Food and Drug Administration has announced draft guidelines that would do away with the current three-month abstinence requirement for donations for men who have had sex with men. Instead, all potential donors would be screened with a new questionnaire that evaluates their individual risk for HIV based on sexual behavior, recent partners, and other factors. If finalized, many gay and bisexual men in monogamous relationships would be able to donate blood for the first time in decades. It's the latest move by the FDA to broaden donor eligibility with the potential to boost donations, and we feel confident that the safety of the blood supply will be maintained, FDA's Dr. Peter Mark said last week. Gay rights groups have long opposed blanket restrictions on who can give blood, saying they discriminate against the LGBTQ community. Medical societies, including the American Medical Association, have also said such inclusions are unnecessary given advances in technology to test blood for infectious diseases. Current and former blood donation policies make unfounded assumptions about gay and bisexual men and really entangled individuals identity with their likelihood of having HIV, said Sarah Warbelow of the Human Rights Campaign and LGBTQ Advocacy Group. The U.S. and many other countries started blocking blood donations from gay and bisexual men during the early 1980s AIDS pandemic, aiming to prevent the spread of HIV through the blood supply. In 2015, the FDA dropped the lifetime ban and replaced it with a one-year abstinence requirement. Then, in 2020, the agency shortened the abstinence period to three months after donations plummeted during the COVID-19 pandemic. Regulators said that there has been no activity or been no negative impact on the blood supply as a result of those changes. The FDA sets requirements and procedures for blood blanks for blood banks throughout the U.S. All potential donors answer questions about their sexual history, injectable drug use, and recent tattoos or piercings, among other factors that can contribute to the spread of blood-borne infections. Donated blood is then tested for HIV, hepatitis C, syphilis, and other infectious diseases. Under the new proposal, men who have had sex with men will be asked if they have had new or multiple partners in the last three months. Those who answer affirmatively to either question and also report having anal sex would be barred from donating until a later date. The policy would also apply to women who have had sex with gay or bisexual men. Anyone who has ever tested positive for HIV would continue to be ineligible to donate blood. Those taking pills to prevent HIV through sexual contact 
would also still be barred until three months after their last dose. The FDA noted that the medication known as PrEP can delay the detection of the virus in screening tests. Merck said the agency is willing to consider further easing restrictions, but we have to do we have the science to do that. FDA regulators will take public comments on the proposal for 60 days before beginning to finalize the guidelines. The proposed policy mirrors those used in Canada and the UK. LGBTQ groups welcomed the FDA's announcement but said the proposal should not include people using PrEP medications. We must be conscious to not further stigmatize these safe sex practices and uplift individuals taking precautions, said Jose Abrigio of Lambda Legal, which has long pushed to change the FDA policy. The FDA based its latest proposal in part on a recent study of 1,600 gay and bisexual men. The FDA-funded research compared the effectiveness of a detailed personal questionnaire on sexual behavior to the current time-based abstinence rules. It will take several months for blood banks to make the changes, according to Cliff Newmark, an executive with Vitalent, a blood center that participated in the study. The changes will require new questionnaires, training for staff, and updating computer software. The Red Cross said it supports the FDA changes, but added that it's too early to know if they will result in more blood donations. Lucas Petrazak of Washington, D.C., said he eagerly volunteered for the FDA study. He credits emergency blood transfusions with saving his father's life after a cycling accident in 1991. Peach Rizak donated blood in high school but became ineligible after becoming sexually active as a gay man. Until I fully came out to my friends, I had to skirt around why I never went to blood drives with them, said Peach Rizak, 26, who now works for the federal government. When there are calls for blood donations, now we're able to be a part of that, Petra's Act said. The next story is titled, On Loan from the Woodbine Library, A Gateway to the Final Frontier, by Gordon Wolf, The Bulletin Review. Mike Modrison, the outreach co-chairperson for the Omaha Astronomical Society, calls astronomy a gateway experience. On January 14th, he explained to Woodbine Carnegie Public Library personnel a way they can hand patrons the keys to the gateway. That key is a telescope. The Woodbine Library purchased a Newtonian reflector telescope from the Omaha Astronomical Society to check out to patrons. Before that can happen, library staff members have to familiarize themselves with the use of the telescope and check out policies have to be developed. The Newtonian reflector telescope uses two mirrors instead of the lenses that a refracting telescope uses. In a reflector telescope, light enters the front aperture and bounces off the back mirror, which has a very subtle parabolic curve to it. The light reflects forward to a mirror held suspended in the front of spider vanes. That mirror is set by a 45-degree angle that sends the light to the eyepiece. The mirrors focus and magnify the image. Because you don't have the lenses, you are a very good color representation, said Mondrasen. Also, because you're looking through mirrors, everything you see is upside down and backwards. A moon chart that is affixed to the telescope barrel is already flipped and reversed, 
so it will look the same as the image the user sees in the eyepiece. A star atlas goes along with the telescope. The images in the atlas show how a person would see objects with their naked eye. The atlas is printed in blue and yellow for a reason. At night, it should be viewed using a flashlight that emits red light. The red light turns the print on the pages turns gray. And the red light will not interfere with people's eyes becoming acclimated to the dark. The telescope also features a moon port. The moon is the brightest light in the sky at night, so bright that it can almost be too much light to look at comfortably because it is being magnified by the telescope. The smaller aperture of the moon port reduces the incoming light, like stopping down a camera lens without reducing the sharpness of the image, Mondrasen explained. Through its library program, the Omaha, the Omaha Astronomical Society offers services that wouldn't be available if the telescope was purchased through a store. First, it would likely be more expensive, and second, the society makes modifications to the telescope so that it is easier to use and more difficult to get out of adjustment. Two members of the Omaha Astronomical Society pay for the zoom eyepieces that come with the telescopes. The 24mm to 8mm zoom eyepieces eliminate the need to have a number of eyepieces of varying focal lengths. Mondrasen said the 24mm said at 24 millimeters, the telescope has 19 times magnification power. The 8mm setting boosts all the way up to 56 power. In addition to those benefits, the libraries receive the support and services of the Omaha Astronomical Society members. Services such as cleaning mirrors, which doesn't need to be done often, and collimation, a process that aligns the telescope's components to bring light into the best focus. Mondrasen, who runs the library telescope program for the Astronomical Society, said the society has been trying to promote the program for about the last six months. He said the library telescope program started in 2008 in the New Hampshire area. The members of the New Hampshire Astronomical Society wanted to help promote astronomy in their communities, so they devised a method of transforming a basic telescope with a few small modifications to make a more patron-friendly and then placed a couple of those telescopes with local libraries. Since then, we're up to about 800 libraries worldwide, Manchun said. He said 700 are now in the United States, but a few more are in Canada, and some sites in Europe have been recently added. We estimate that it's around 4% of all the United States public libraries, he continued. Within those 800 libraries, there are 2,500 to 3,000 telescopes because some areas have upwards to 30 telescopes in one branch depending on the size of the city. Monstrin said the Woodbine Carnegie Public Library is the first Iowa library to come on board with the telescope program through the Omaha Astronomical Society. He added that the Logan Public Library will be in the program in a month or so. Besides being easy to use, the telescopes are durable. Monstrin said some telescopes handed out when the program began in 2008 are still in service. Besides being easy to use, the telescopes are durable, Mondrasen said. Some telescopes handed out when the program began in 2008 are still in service. It is much easier to find objects in the sky with the Newtonian Reflectings Telescope 
Then with the inexpensive refracting telescopes, he said, the inexpensive refracting telescopes are often the kind that people purchase or receive as a gift and then try to use without any instruction. Monstrons called those telescopes hobby killers. Even if a patron is having trouble finding the stars with the Newtonian reflecting telescope, they can always look at the moon. You can find the moon in less than 10 seconds, Mondrison said. Mondrison cautioned that one object a person should never look at through the telescope is the sun, and added that should be something very clear in the library's checkout policy and should probably be reiterated by library staff when they are checking out the telescope. Links to astronomical information are easy to find. A QR code is on the front label of the telescope. The code will take people to the Omaha Astronomical Society Facebook page on which they can find lists of resources, including links to some apps for phones. Mondrison said that some people want, some people use phone apps to see what they want to hone in with the telescope. And if patrons have questions, they can post a question to the society's Facebook page. Members keep an eye on the comments and send a response. You want to make it as easy as possible for everyone, Mondrison said. The only thing that the patron would have to do when they check a telescope out is to align the red dot finder on the front of the telescope. The instructions of how to do that will be included in the materials, and YouTube videos are available to explain the red dot finder adjustment process. The process aligns the telescope to match the image seen through the eyepiece. An inexpensive accessory that the Woodbine Library is going to purchase for the telescope is a round 10-gallon trash can. The bottom of the trash can is the right diameter for the feet of the telescope to fit over. Using the trash can is more helpful to adults who might want to raise the height of the telescope for easier viewing for children. For children, the telescope might be at just the right height on the table surface or a similar stable platform of the same height. Eyepiece projections can be done using a handheld phone that is lined up correctly. Mondrison said, some libraries offer a cell phone adapter for the eyepiece. Adapters are also available to attach a camera to the eyepiece and the image can be cast or wired to a television. Mondrison demonstrated how to hold the microscope crooked in the elbow of one arm held tightly against the body. When being transported in a car, the telescope is buckled in with the vehicle seatbelt. Our main goal is to have somebody check the telescope out just like they would a book, Mondrison said. Although, Mondrison said, astronomy is a gateway science, using a telescope is not rocket science. Just point, look, the more you do it, the easier it gets, he said. We will now read some of the sports section. Djokovic back at top of ATB, ATP rankings by Howard Frederick Hendrick from the Associated Press. Novak Djokovic, Australian Open Championship, returned him to a rather similar spot on Monday, number one in the ATP rankings. His four-place rise from number five to replace Carlos Alcaraz at number one is the largest jump to the top spot in the 50-year history of the computerized rankings for men's tennis. You never know how much more time you have left. So, of course, I nurture and celebrate these moments of becoming number one again and Grand Slam champion, the 35-year-old Djokovic said after beating Stefanos 
in the final at Melbourne Park on Sunday night, even more than I have maybe ever in my career. I don't take it for granted. Arena Sablenska's first major title moved her up from number five to her career best, equaling number two in the WTA rankings, behind only three-time major champion Iga Swiatek. On Straver, twice a finalist at Slams in 2022, went from number two to number three, followed by number four, Jessica Pegula, number five, Caroline Garcia, and number six, Coco Golf. The player Sabalenka beat in Saturday's Australian Open final, Elena Rybakina, makes her top 10 debut at number 10, up from number 25. This marks Djokovic's 374th week leading the ATP, adding to his record. He earned a 10th title at the Australian Open and tied Rafael Nadal with 25 Grand Slam trophies. Alcaraz slid into number two. He had become the youngest man to be at number one when he took over at age 19 after winning the U.S. Open last September. Alcaraz missed the Australian Open because of a leg injury. Injury. Nadal, who hurt his left hip flexor during a second round loss to Mackenzie McDonald of the United States, dropped from number two to number six. Sipas went from number four to number three because of his run in Melbourne. He would have been number one for the first time if he had managed to win the title. Casper Round, a two-time Grand Slam runner-up, who lost in the second round to Jensen Brooksby of the United States, went from number three to number four. Audrey Rublev is number five after getting to the quarterfinals. Cracking to the top 20 for the first time is Tommy Paul, a 25-year-old American who reached his first Grand Slam semifinal before exiting against Djokovic. Paul's showing in Melbourne lifted him 16 spots from number 35 to number 19. He is one of 10 U.S. men in the top 50, something that last happened in 1995. Chiefs survives Bengals. Get time to heal for Super Bowl. This is paired with an image of um, some of the Kansas City Chiefs, and it is labeled Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes and tight end Travis Kelsey Wright celebrate with the Lamar Hunt Trophy after beating the Cincinnati Bengals for the AFC Championship on Sunday in Kansas City, Missouri. This story is written by Dave Scretta from the Associated Press. Patrick Mahomes certainly deserved a game ball from Sunday night's AFC title game when the all-pro quarterback dashed off his sprained ankle, his sprained right ankle in the waning seconds to help set up the winning field goal. Travis Kelsey probably did too. With the Chiefs missing three wide receivers because of injuries, the all-pro tight and played through remnants of back spasms that nearly kept him out of the game entirely and finished with seven catches for 78 yards and a score. The real MVP of the 23-20 win over the Cincinnati Bengals, though, might well have been longtime Chiefs trainer Rick Burkholder and his staff. It was Burkholder and fellow trainer Julie Freimeyer who put together a plan to get Mahomes ready for the Bengals. 
Ben had to find a way to get Kelsey ready when his back acted up 48 hours before kickoff. I didn't expect to be able to run very much, Mahomes acknowledged. The training staff, Julie, did a great job of getting me enough range and mobility that I was able to protect myself. And then at the end of the game there, I had to run just to get to the first down and got us in field goal range. So credit to them. Credit to them for Kelsey, too. I wasn't sure if I would be able to do it, he said. But we have the best training staff in the entire NFL. I'm just very thankful and appreciative. I don't know where I would have been mentally if I wasn't able to play this game. One thing is certain, the Chiefs probably wouldn't be preparing to face the Philadelphia Eagles in the Super Bowl. The job is only beginning for Burkholder and his team, though. Mahomes was limping badly by the end and will no doubt use the next two weeks to ready his ankle for one more game. Kelsey will likewise use the time to rest his ailing back. Then there's cornerback Legere Sneed, who is in the concussion protocol. Linebacker Willie Gay Jr. with an injured shoulder and wide receivers Kadarius Tony with an ankle injury, Juju Smith-Schuster with a knee injury, and McCole Hardman with a pelvis injury, all of whom watched the dramatic conclusion Sunday night from the sideline. The training room might be the busiest place at Arrowhead Stadium before the Chiefs head to Phoenix next week. What's working? The Chiefs sacked the Bengals' Joe Burrow five times, including one by Chris Jones that forced a final punt and gave Kansas City a chance to drive for the eventual winning field goal. That pressure helped a defensive backfield play, playing a trio of rookie cornerbacks and a rookie safety hang with one of the best groups of wide receivers in the league. My whole offseason was dedicated to this game, said Jones, who had never had never has a postseason sack in 11 games before getting to Sunday night, making sure that when the moment calls, for me specifically, that I'll answer the call. What's not working? Without three injured receivers and their quarterback hobbled, the Chiefs continually tried to establish the run Sunday night, but they only managed 42 yards on 20 carries, a paltry 2.1 yards per attempt. Stock up. Frank Clark had five sacks in 15 regular season games, but the three-time Pro Bowl pass rusher has been on a postseason tear. He has two and a half between the divisional round and the AFC title game, giving him 13 and a half in the playoffs for his career. He trails only Willie McGinnis, 16, and Bruce Smith, 14 and a half, for the most postseason sacks since 18 or since 1982. Stock down. Right tackle Andrew Wiley had some brutal moments against the Bengals. His holding penalty brought back a touchdown run from Isaiah Pancheco and forced Kansas City to kick a field goal. Later, Wiley was called for unsportsmanlike conduct for taunting, and Mahomes fumbled three plays later to set up a tying touchdown by Cincinnati early in the fourth quarter. Injuries. Mahomes, Kelsey, Sneed, Gay, Herdman, Smith-Schuster, and Tony would be plenty, but the Chiefs also had wide receiver Justin Watson inactive with an illness on Sunday, and running back Clyde Edwards-Hilaire with a sprained ankle is still not fully back from injury reserves. Key number, 
Three, the Chiefs will be making their third Super Bowl appearance in four years and the fifth in franchise history. They will also be seeking their third Lombardi trophy after winning their first two 50 years apart. Next steps. The Chiefs are 5-4 against the Eagles, with coach Andy Reid winning the past six games. How did he manage that? Reid won his last three before getting fired by Philadelphia and has since won all three against his former team with Kansas City. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for January 31st. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Mel from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening. Some would call 88-year-old Sally Jackson a lucky senior. A few years ago, a family member offered to move in and care for Sally so that she wouldn't have to leave the comfort of her own home. But soon after, one of Sally's neighbors, Carol, paid a visit, unannounced. Something wasn't quite right. Sally's demeanor and physical appearance had changed. Luckily, Carol was aware of warning signs that might signal elder abuse. Such as bruises, poor hygiene. Isolation, depression. Appearing withdrawn or unusually quiet as if to hide something. When victimized, elderly people often feel ashamed, confused. But an alert neighbor helped Sally. Not all abused seniors are as lucky. 
as Sally Jackson. McGruff the Crime Dog here. The National Crime Prevention Council wants to help you and your loved ones prevent elder abuse. Know what to look for. Know how to report it to local law enforcement agencies. To learn more, go to ncpc.org forward slash seniors. That's ncpc.org slash seniors. A message from the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Department of Justice. From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.